This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. There are hundreds, hundreds, there thousands. There's about 60,000 cross-references in the Bible of the Bible referring to itself in different ways. And you might think, man, if the Bible had one author that was genius on a whole other level, maybe that one author could plan those 60,000 connections or, or hundreds of these design patterns. But the Bible isn't one book. All you have to do is look at your index and you find out that the Bible is 66 books from 40 plus authors. And most of these authors never met each other. They, sometimes they lived in different countries. They spoke different languages. They lived in vastly different time periods and in different cultures. And God, being the one author, writing through human authors in all these different contexts and languages and places, puts together the most incredible literary work and man has ever known. But it's more than just a literary work because it's God's word. It's his revelation of himself to people so they might know him. And here's the crux. Know him and have salvation. This is a mode of knowing God, the mode of knowing God, to have salvation. So tonight, I want to take a look at one of those biblical patterns that I just find fascinating. And it's in a story you already know. Well, most of you probably already know it. And if you don't already know it, that's your homework tonight. Go home and read, beginning at Genesis 37 forward. And I think you'll find a fascinating story. And you'll start picking up on some of these patterns. So please turn your Bibles to Genesis Chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, and it's the story of a young man, 17 years old, named Joseph. Who knows Joseph? You heard the Joseph story? Heard the Joseph story? If you haven't yet, that's cool. Start at 37 and start reading. You're going to love it. It's fascinating. And I want to take a look at one element of the story. This isn't the whole purpose of the story, but it's an element. It's one of those design patterns that we're supposed to pick up on. And we're going to take it to its fruition all the way into the New Testament and actually into our future. You guys ready for this? This is so cool. Genesis 37. And since you're there looking at your copy of the Bible, let's just go ahead and start at uh, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. All right, so these are the sons of this guy named Jacob. He has 12 sons. Joseph being 17 years old. Okay, this is a story about him. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah. So these are some of the other women that are helping take care of Jacob's sons, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to their father. So Joseph is telling, tattletaling on his brothers. Now Israel, which is Jacob, same name. Israel and Jacob, same person. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. So of 12 brothers, it was explicitly clear Joseph was loved the most. 
because he was the son of Jacob's old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So I want to grab this idea of a robe. It's his garment. It's what he's wearing. So if we were to stop right here, what does the robe represent? What does it mean to his brothers? What does it represent to us? Go ahead. Talk back to me. A love, the love of his father. What else? Favoritism. Excellent. What else? Ooh, the jealousy of his brothers because of his position, right, in the family. His father, he's the youngest, and his father has elevated him and poured out favor on him. Good, good. You got all the right answers. He's unique, and he's favored. So let's, let's jump forward in the story. So Joseph goes out to find out what his brothers are doing. Jacob sends him to go give a report. And when his brothers see him coming, they get upset with him. One of the reasons they get upset with him is because he keeps having these dreams, these pesky dreams, these dreams where the brothers seem to be bowing down to him in Joseph's dreams. And so they hate him all the more. He's the tattletale. He's the favorite. And now he's having dreams where the brothers are, are servants of him. Like, who is this kid? So they see him coming, and when he gets there, they make a pact that they're going to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest, kind of intervenes and stops them from killing him, but convinces them to throw him into a dry well, into a hole in the ground. <laughs> That's an interesting connection. Y'all, go st Okay, so many connections here. Let's jump to verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit, the innocent in a hole, it's interesting. Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe. Oh, they sold Joseph to slave traders. Sorry, I should have told you that. They pulled Joseph out of the pit while Reuben was like taking a walk or something and they sold him as a slave. So then Reuben comes up, the pit's empty and he says, where am I gonna go? Dad's gonna hate me. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob, his father, mourns for the death of his son. So get the imagery, these bright colors, the, the item, the token of love and affection and position is now stained and dipped in dark blood and brought to dad for dad to weep over. So in the story right now, what is the robe representing? Getting there. What does it represent? Come on, what does it represent to the reader? What does it represent to, the, to Jacob, the father? Yeah, go ahead. Death. Yes, got it. It represents death. Jacob looks at the robe and he says, my son is dead. He's devoured. What else does it represent? Go ahead, Sebastian. Sit. Yeah, Jacob's definitely feeling the loss. It represents betrayal. They stripped his robe off of him. 
They betrayed him. They lied about him. And they sent Joseph into chains. And they used the robe that they hated as the evidence to deceive their father. I hope you're following right now. It's about to get interesting. Now let's keep going in the story. So we're going to jump over the Judah and Tamar story. It seems irrelevant, but we can come back to that on a whole other Wednesday. Joseph is sold into slavery, and he's purchased by one of the Pharaoh, like the king of Egypt, one of Pharaoh's like head soldier guys. His name was Potiphar. And Potiphar buys Joseph, makes him a servant in his home. And Joseph is so faithful and so hardworking, and everything that Joseph does goes really, really well. So Potiphar starts promoting him and promoting him and promoting him until Potiphar doesn't even worry about the management of his household anymore. Joseph is in charge of all that wealthy Potiphar owns. And Potiphar goes off on a trip. And Joseph has not only grown up in integrity and strength and diligent, he's also gotten good looking. And Potiphar's wife, the Bible uses the terminology, she be cast in eyes on Joseph. And that's where we're going to pick up in the story. She's casting eyes. So let's go to chapter 39, verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his... Who's reading with me? She caught him by his... His garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us, talking about her husband, he has brought among us this Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me. He tried to rape me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master Potiphar came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, as in like mock her, rape her. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. So this is the second time in the story that Joseph's robe, his garment, has become really, really significant. Now imagine, he is, he's moved up in the ranks in Potiphar's house. His robes probably reflect a servant, but a head servant. A second time, his robe is stripped off of him. A second time, his robe is used as evidence in a deception. And a second time, Joseph is led out in chains. Do you see the pattern? I'm not making this up. This is the kind of stuff that you can start looking for. You start reading something like this and you go, why? Why is that there? What is the author trying to communicate to us? And that is like one of the best feelings because now you have a mystery to solve. And you get to keep reading and see if you can tie things together. Why is this here? 
What is the author trying to communicate? Let's keep going in the story. Joseph is put into the prison. And again, Joseph's integrity, his diligence, his hard work, and his his trustworthiness are recognized to the point that the head jailer in the prison makes Joseph in charge of the jail. Trusts him so much, he doesn't even worry about the keys. He just trusts Joseph because Joseph has so much integrity. Now, Joseph has been in jail now for years. And this strange thing happens where both the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker, the cupbearer is the one who brings wine to the Pharaoh. He tastes it, makes sure that you know, he's not being poisoned. He's probably also the one who takes care of the vineyards. And then the baker, the one who is probably taking care of the wheat, grinding, making bread. For some reason, they make Pharaoh mad, and Pharaoh imprisons both of them, and they meet Joseph. And one night, both of these guys have a dream. And they're both disturbed And they can't figure out what it means. And Joseph says, hey, isn't God the giver of dreams? Isn't God the interpreter of dreams? And they're like, what God? And Joseph's like, I know him. And he interprets their dreams. He says, cupbearer, the Pharaoh is going to restore you back to your old position. Baker, the Pharaoh is going to have you hung and killed. And both dreams come to pass. And as the cupbearer is being brought back to Pharaoh, Joseph says, when you get back, when you're free, when you have a position again, Remember me. And he doesn't. The cupbearer forgets about him for years. And then one night, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh wakes up stressed. And he gets all of his soothsayers and magicians and wise men, and no one can tell him what the dream means. Everyone's confused. And then the cupbearer is like, huh. Hold on. So (laughs) you're never going to believe this, but... Remember that one time, you know, recently, three years ago, when I was in jail and you tried to kill me? So Pharaoh, I met this guy and he interpreted my dream. Maybe he can do the same for you. So Pharaoh gets Joseph out of the prison, out of the dungeon, and he brings him and Joseph interprets his dream. And he says, Pharaoh, your dream is really interesting. It means, first of all, that we're about to have seven years of tons and tons and tons of food. All of our crops are going to be great. But those seven years will be followed by seven years of miserable famine. And the famine will be way worse than the good years were good. And the Pharaoh goes, well, what should we do? And Joseph goes, I got an idea. Find someone trustworthy and have them store up food for seven years so that when the famine gets here, there's more than enough left. And Pharaoh goes, I got an idea. You, you get to do it. Let's pick up right there. Chapter 41. Let's go to verse 39. This is so much. 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh is making him number two in all of Egypt. So all of Egypt is run by Joseph. The only person that can tell him otherwise is Pharaoh. He's the only one who's more superior. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, I'm bringing you into my family, and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He gives him his daughter to marry. So he's marrying into the royal household. So right here, what do the robes represent? The prison robes have been stripped off and replaced with Pharaoh's robes. What do they represent? Restoration. Restoration. Excellent. What else? Sebastian. Royalty. What else? Love. This side. They're doing great. What do y'all think? What do the, what do the royal robes represent on Joseph? Power. Excellent. What else? Authority. Thank you. Position. Not only is Joseph restored to what he had in his family under his father, respect, position, favor, but now it comes with power. He's been restored plus, 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 and in charge. But the story's not over yet. You all finding this interesting? Following this pattern? So the good years come. And Joseph does just like he said. He stores up the food. But then the seven years of famine come, and food is running out all over the world. Like everywhere that Egypt is in contact with, the superpower of Egypt is in contact with, they're starving. So people are coming from everywhere to get food. And I don't have time to go into the details, which is so sad, but you can go read it for yourself. Ultimately, Joseph's brothers, who are hungry back home, travel cross-country to get food. And they come to the one man who is delivering and selling food, who is? And they come in, but he's dressed like an Egyptian. I don't know, maybe he had like the Egyptian eye makeup. Like this now, I don't know, but they don't recognize him. It's also been years and years and years and years. And they come in to buy grain from Joseph. Now there's this incredible story where Joseph tests them because now there's a new baby in the family, the baby brother, Benjamin. And Joseph wants to know, have their hearts changed? Have they grown in integrity? Have they grown in honesty? Are they willing now, instead of sacrificing the little brother, are they willing to sacrifice themselves for the little brother? Or are his brothers exactly the same? You go read that by yourself. But we're going to fast forward to the big finish where Joseph finally says, I'm your brother, the one that you sold into slavery. And they're crying, and they, they hug each other, and there's this big reunion, and they go and get dad, and dad's like, he's alive. And they, they brings them all to Egypt. Now take a look at this. Let's go to chapter 45, and go to verse 17. 45, verse 17. So Jacob has been, just looking at the story of his robes, he has been betrayed. He has, quote unquote, died in the eyes of his father. He has been restored. And now what's going to happen? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 17, say to your brothers, do this, load up your beasts 
and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them, so Joseph is distributing gifts. He gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and to all of them he gave a change of. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of. So the brothers who ripped off his robe and stole from him, he turns around and gives them greater than what they stole. He doesn't give them punishment. He actually gives them unmerited grace. He gives them a gift they don't deserve. And Benjamin, five times. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus. God placed Joseph at a certain time in a certain place to save the family of Israel because they were God's people who God was going to raise up Jesus out of. And God is going to place Jesus at a certain time in a certain place to save God's people again through the cross. Joseph was favored he was killed, he was betrayed, he was betrayed, restored, and he turns and he gives grace and mercy and provision to the very ones who sinned against him. And Jesus, who is the beloved son, who is betrayed and killed and restored, turns and offers grace and provision to those who sinned against him. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Let's keep chasing this theme. Matthew 27. Let's jump forward to the story of Jesus. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. The crowd has yelled, crucify him. Matthew 27. And we're going to see garments come into play again. And if you love Jesus, the story hurts your heart. The person that died for you being abused and mocked. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 28. Pilate has turned over Jesus to be crucified. Nails pounded through his hands and his feet, whipped and bloodied, beaten until his face was unrecognizable, his beard ripped out. We're going to pick up here. Let's look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Imagine being surrounded by people that hate you, abusing you, surrounded by them, laughing as they hurt you. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. We have Jesus being stripped of his robe. And in mocking, because he is king, they shame him by pretending and mocking him as king, which is terribly ironic. Putting on the royal colors, twisting a crown of thorns. If you want to look at another amazing pattern, go back to Genesis 3 and see what thorns represent. And Jesus is carrying the curse of mankind. Now let's keep going. Revelation chapter 19. Jesus dies on the cross. He forgives those who abused him. And he didn't stay dead because the grave has no power over the king of life. And he raised from the grave three days later. And he was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other people for 40 days He gave one last brief sermon and he ascended. His feet lifted off the ground and he did his launch into the sky. Probably slower than a launch, but that's the way I like to picture it. And he said he'll be back. And God spoke to John and said, this is what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. You know how Jesus came in humbly, riding on a donkey? You know how Jesus was abused and forsaken? There'll be a point when God's grace and his time of mercy and patience for people to turn and be obedient to the king of kings will be over. And this is how Jesus will return. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to start at verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He was on a donkey before, but now he's on a war horse. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. It's a fancy word for crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Commentators are split. Is it dipped in his own blood, showing his sacrifice, or is it dipped in the blood of his enemies? Oh, and if you go and you want to read Isaiah 63, 2 through 4, it's pretty clear which of those two is true. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which is with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He is the sovereign king and he has come to take charge. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What color is his robe? Doesn't say. Because you know what's most important? What it represents. What's written on it. 
It is his authority, his position, his favor, his power as the king of kings and the master of masters, the Lord of lords. A total restoration, higher than before, but with power. His robe represents a total defeat of his enemies and his complete power and authority and sovereignty. So we've looked at Jesus. We've looked at Joseph. We see like there's this pattern, this foreshadowing, right? But let's keep this robes theme. Where do we stand? How do we look at ourselves? Isaiah 64, 5 through 7. You can turn there if you want to. Isaiah 64, it's the second half of verse 5 through 7. I'll read it to you. This is who we are. Behold, this is speaking to God. You were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Hear the heart like you're missing it. Hear the heart. How will we be saved? We're sinners and you're angry against our sin. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, our sins, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our sins. Spurgeon says that it's, like, it's interesting. If you were to take a white sheet of paper and you went and laid it on white snow, that suddenly the sheet of paper might look kind of yellow because it's being compared to something that's brilliantly white. We have to understand that the best thing that you and I have ever done, the time that we were the most selfless, the time that we were the most sacrificial, the time that we were the most altruistic, that time, our greatest righteousness, when compared to God's holiness, is like a dirty shirt, a dirty dress, a filthy garment. Imagine Mission Impossible, crawling through the mud, and you try to get into your mom's car. And she's like, I don't think so. Absolutely not. That is the greatest righteousness that you and I own. It's like a filthy garment. Who will save us from his righteous punishment? But... There's a theme of garments running through the Bible. Another one. It starts off in Genesis 3.21 when Adam and Eve have sinned and they recognize their nakedness, which represents their shame before God. Do you guys know what God does? That's right. God makes for them a garment of animal skins and when they're in shame, when they're holy steeped in their sin and guilt and misery, God clothes them. Later in the Bible, there's a story about Zechariah. 
And the high priest at that time, his name was Joshua. This is not the Joshua of the, of the, the wall of Jericho. This is a different Joshua. And God speaks to Zechariah and says, go to Joshua, who's the high priest. This is a good guy. This is a guy that has life together. And he says, Joshua, your righteousness is like filthy rags. You're wearing filthy clothes. Take them off, and we're going to put clean clothes on you. God appoints that clean clothes are placed on Joshua. Think about Luke. Remember when the, the son, the prodigal son, goes running off from home? He tells his dad he wishes he was dead. He takes the money. He goes and he spends it and wastes it and gambles it and spends it on prostitutes and gambling. And then he's broke and has nothing. So he comes up with this, this speech that he's going to give dad. Dad, your servants, they eat well. They eat better than I'm eating. So if you'll take me in, I don't even have to be your son. Just make me a servant in your house and I'll serve you faithfully. And right in the middle of his speech, he comes home and his dad runs to him. He wraps his arms around him. And, and this prodigal son, he's trying to get the speech out of his mouth. And his dad is like, shh. And then puts a ring on his finger. You're in the family. And then he takes a garment and he wraps it over his shoulders. God has already set up a pattern in scripture of this. You're in filthy rags. I'm going to take them off of you. And I'm going to cover you with what you do not have an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, something that is outside of you, from the outside wrapping around you. And the only one who is righteous, who is holy, who can cover the sinner is God himself. This is why in Isaiah 61, if you turn to Isaiah 64, you're already mostly there. Isaiah 61, verse 10 Isaiah is recognizing the sin of himself and his people. And then he cries out to the God that he knows is holy, is righteous. And he says this in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has... Oh, come on. He has... He has clothed me with thee garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Yeah, there's a theme of our sin being like filthy robes. And there's a theme in scripture that is trying to be communicated to us that God who is righteous lays over us his righteousness, his purifying grace. Later in Isaiah, it says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, healed from our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid, think about that garment, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which means God didn't just strip us of those filthy rags. In fact, he took the rags that were filthy from us and he laid them on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. And then he bore the weight of God's anger towards sin on Jesus. And Jesus took the robe of his perfect holiness and righteousness and he comes to a sinner like you and me and he lays his robe over us. So when God sees us, 
he sees his son's perfection. And when he saw Jesus on the cross, he saw our filthiness. Do you see the great exchange of a loving father, of our loving Lord? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who never knew sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, who never knew righteousness. A cosmically spiritual transaction has taken place at the cross. And that same cosmic transaction happens when you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin. I'm yours. I serve you as my king with the rest of my life. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. I'll make you my Lord. And Jesus says, you're mine. And he wraps you with his righteousness. And God's anger and wrath towards your sin is now placed on Jesus at the cross. And I want to close with this awesome thought. Imagine a time traveler brought you a future photograph of you as a great-grandparent with your family. And they gave it to you. And they disappeared back in their little time telephone box. And you're looking at this picture, and you're like, whoa. And you're looking, and you're like, wow, these these." tall, adult-looking people, these are my kids. They, they have their mom's cheeks. They have my eyes. Wow. And under their elbows, they've got these babies. They're holding them up. The kids are not looking at the camera, and they're blowing bubbles and, and having fits and everything. And what? where's my hair? I used to have hair. I have hair. Where did I get the scar on my chin from? And you're looking into the future, and everyone looks happy. Everyone looks, but you look at the background and the scenery is strange. It's beautiful, but it's foreign. This is not my house. This is not from around here. What if the Bible actually gave you that snapshot of your life? What if you could actually take a photo from Scripture and say, there I am right there? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if he has saved you and you've turned from sin and turned to, to him and given him your life, then you have a snapshot photo of you in the future in here. And I'll tell you, it turns out great. Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 7. There's all kinds of metaphor going on here. There's all kinds of really interesting things happening. Tons of references to Genesis and Zechariah and Ezekiel and all kinds of fun. But I want to jump to the vision that God gave John of a future new heaven and a new earth. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. <laughs> oh, man, if there's some believers in this house, this is what you have to look forward to. Here's a snapshot of you in the future. Verse 9. After this, John is speaking, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes. 
with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Every tribe, every nation, a multitude that can't be counted. Think of that. Think of millions of people and all these heads. And somewhere in there, if you love Jesus with all your heart, you can go, that head right there. That one right there. That's me. In this congregation from all time, from the beginning since the end, since God has been saving through faith by grace, all the way through Abraham and Moses and millions and millions of people will never meet millions and millions of people who have called on God, who don't have their names written in any book anywhere. Millions and millions and millions of people for thousands of years are gathered at the throne and they're all different colors and they have all different languages and they're wearing different things and yet all of them are wearing the same thing. They're wearing the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. Because long ago on earth, maybe at that one Wednesday night, maybe you said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I give my life to you. And in that moment, the white robe of Jesus' righteousness is placed on you, and your sin expunged on the cross. And you can look into the future and say, there I am. I'm one of those in white. I'm one of those in front of the throne worshiping my heart out to God, joining all of creation where every tongue bows and where every knee bows and tongue confesses. There's a snapshot of our future, believers in Christ. If this is true, I'd like to give you two things to hold on to. One, turn from your sin. There is nothing in this world or in anything that is promoted that holds a candle to the value of Jesus Christ in your life. If your whole life was used up and you never had a joy again and it was used entirely for the sake of Christ and it was misery and suffering from now till you died, it still wouldn't be enough to sacrifice for him. And God loves to bless his kids. He loves to bless us. But it would be worth it. There's no amount of money. There's no supermodel girl you can marry. There's no car or house. There's no perfect love story. There's nothing in this life that is worth having except Jesus. Because all of eternity hangs on a brief moment of our life of whether we will bow before his throne or we will spend our lives living for ourselves. So I challenge you to turn from sin and turn towards Jesus. Make a change of direction. And if you're in here and you're like, I'm a Christian, I'm good. I've signed, I've signed the, the document. I've got my life insurance. I need to challenge you because there is a whole lot of quote-unquote Christians 
that say that they serve Jesus, but they've never turned away from their sin. And let me cue you in, they're not Christians. A Christian has submitted their life to Jesus Christ to be obedient. Their life is going to change, be transformed. It's going to look completely different. It won't look like their old life anymore. Challenge yourself. Corinthians challenges us. It says, examine yourself of whether you're even in the faith or not. Let's do that. Challenge yourself. And the other thing I'd like to challenge you to do is to turn from sin to Jesus. And number two, fight for holiness. He places his righteousness on us. May we live. May we strive to please the God that has already given us salvation. We don't lose our salvation when we sin again. He's given it to us. His grace is sufficient. His mercy abounds. But we grieve the heart of the God who loves us most when we sin. We're like stiff-arming and kind of like cutting off the communication lines when we sin because we're going back to our old ways. In fact, Proverbs says that when we turn back to our old sin, you guys still with me over here? When we turn back to our old sin, have you ever watched your dog go back and eat its own vomit? Is that disgusting? Have you ever watched them lick up their own vomit? Whenever you say, Jesus, I'm yours, and then you go back and you go back to your pornography, you go back to your gossip, you go back to whatever it is, you're just like that dog who is licking up its own vomit from your floor. Fight. Fight for the holiness in your life. Recap. Joseph and his story of saving his family is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of all glory as the righteous King of kings and Lord of lords. Our sin is like a filthy robe we wear, and our position is under God's wrath. But out of love, God doesn't leave us to judgment. He also foreshadows and foretells saving his people through the imagery of covering their sin with his righteousness like a white robe. This is fulfilled by Jesus through his work on the cross. And what do we do now? We turn from sin to Jesus and fight for holiness. So two challenges, amen. One, go search for yourself. See if you can find some of these patterns. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of patterns that you can pick up on Just start getting familiar with your Bible. And number two, what needs to be removed from your life? What area of your life have you not repented from? Or maybe it's that thing that just won't leave you alone. That sin you just keep going back to and licking up again. What is that thing? And begin praying about it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Joseph and his diligence. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the greater Joseph, who was Jesus, who would save his people out of slavery to sin. Thank you, Lord, for the white robes of righteousness, the the metaphor, the analogy of a white robe of your very real righteousness. Lord, I pray that you're turning hearts towards you right now. That those who used to love sin and hate righteousness will begin to love righteousness and hate sin with all of their being. May we live to please you. May we live to glorify you, O King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.